Hope your week has went well and that you've had a good time celebrating our nation's Independence Day. Uh, it's just been a, a wonderful week and just a great reminder of the sacrifice and cost that freedom comes at. Now, last week, we started our time together in the book of 2 Timothy, which is where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, you can start opening it up now. We'll still be in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. But I want to recap a couple of things just in case you weren't here or you were and you fell asleep and you might have missed something. Just in case. You never know. So I like to always recap a little bit. Okay. So the books written by Paul in the New Testament, when they're placed in our Bible, are not placed in chronological order. They're actually placed in order by length, okay? So it goes from longest to shortest. So when you're looking at this, you're going to find that 2 Timothy actually has two books after it. However, chronologically, we actually think that this is probably the last book that he wrote before he was executed in Rome while he was imprisoned there. We think that this was the last book written very, very close to his death. Now, he, was, he accepted Christ and he lived for 30 years as a Christ follower, a very active Christ follower for 30 years. For three decades, he sought after Christ and he unwaveringly told the gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had come to do. He established many churches because of the gospel that he was preaching. He was constantly under face of persecution. And he was constantly under threat of losing his life. In fact, he was imprisoned multiple times, as we talked about last week, because of his unwavering stance of Christ, because he said the name of Christ at all costs. Last week, we spent time looking at the first seven verses of chapter one, the first half of chapter one. This week, we're actually going to finish up chapter one. We're going to go eight through 18. Now, I had mentioned that there's a hint of sadness in this letter that you don't find in other letters. Um, Paul knows that his time on earth is quickly coming to an end. From verse four, if you look back in verse four, you're going to notice, as we covered last time, that it's almost like he knows the date even, like because he talks about the sadness and sorrow of Timothy as well. It's almost like he's been informed, this is the day that you will be executed, and then he's passed this on to Timothy. That's the way that it feels. We don't know that for certain, but that's the implication that's given. Paul wrote this letter to his son in the faith, telling him to be strong not to stop his pursuit of Jesus Christ, to pass on the gospel to the next generation, and above all, not to fear the world, even when it turns against him like it did to Paul. Now, last time we were together, I also introduced our memory verse for this book, which is 2 Timothy 2, 15. If you were an Awana student, you probably know this in a different version. I did a New King James. I was talking to someone last night. They said, I know this, and it's really hard right now because I remember this in King James when I was a kid, and it's just slightly off. Uh, and so hopefully, uh, if you're not familiar with this verse, uh, you'll get familiar as we're going through. So let's say this one together. I got the words on the screen just in case you don't know it. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, in this verse, Paul tells us to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Now, you're going to probably wonder, what exactly does he mean by this? After all, you probably know that the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is not a reward of our, our good works. So, what could he mean? 
Well, Paul uses the context of a good worker. He says you've got to be presenting yourself as a good worker. Someone who has been hired for a job. So I think this is terms that we can all relate to, especially if you've ever been in a management position. You've been over other people. So in our day and age, if you want a job, you submit your application with your qualifications, your background experiences towards the potential job. And if you're qualified and if they like your attitude, you get hired for the job. Now, getting your foot in the door is only the first step. What you do with your time on the job is an entirely different thing. Some people get hired and they are amazing employees. They come to work, they don't complain, and they do their job. There are others, however, that leave the business regretting their choice to hire them. You maybe have met them, maybe hopefully you haven't been them. Uh, They constantly miss their shift. They only give excuses, they don't give results, and they are a constant headache. And in much the same way, Paul is telling Timothy and us that we should aim to be a good worker, one who doesn't need to be ashamed with the quality of the work that we're putting out, that we're producing. The way that we become good workers is rather simple, actually. We read the manual, and then we live by it. The Bible is the manual that I'm referring to. But the choice ultimately is ours, and ours alone, and only we can make it. Today, we're going to continue through chapter one, and Paul, again, is going to address the calling of God in our lives and our response to what he has offered us. So today, our sermon is titled, Learning to Live Well. Learning to Live Well. Now, probably the best place for us to start reading is, uh, well, in the Word of God. So let's start where we left off last time. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to be beginning in verse eight, uh, and I will give you just a moment if you're not already there. Okay, Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So he starts off with the words, do not be ashamed. Why would Timothy be ashamed? What would he have to be ashamed of? The New Living Translation actually does a really good job at clarifying this. I'll put this up on the screen. In the New Living, in the same verse, it says this words, um, this wording. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength of God that he gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. Paul does not want fear to have a grip on Timothy's life. He doesn't want fear to have a grip on his life. This is what he just said in verse 7 which we covered last time. He doesn't want the fear of the potential of consequences of telling the gospel to people to stop him from telling others about Jesus. So let me say that again so it sinks in. Paul doesn't want the fear of the potential consequences of telling others the gospel to stop Timothy from telling people about Jesus. Think about it with me for just a moment. Where is Paul right now as he is writing this letter? He is in prison. He's facing a death sentence. Why is he in facing this death sentence? Why is he in jail? Because he was telling the gospel. So he's in jail right now, writing a letter, facing a death sentence. He knows his, most likely he knows his execution date. And he's in there because he was telling the gospel. He stood for Christ and he wouldn't back down from telling the gospel. So if you're Timothy, Paul's protege, his son in the faith, and your mentor, your father figure, is facing a death sentence for telling the gospel, you have some choices to make. 
Paul knows this. He knows this very well. And he tells Timothy not to allow fear, what may or what may not happen, to control his life. So he says, don't be ashamed. Don't let my circumstances stop you from telling the truth about God to those who desperately need to hear it. Now, if you were here with us last time, you should probably remember that fear comes from a place when we feel powerless, when we feel like we can't do anything, we're stuck. Fear will start to come in and try to take over us. So Paul reminds him of where his source of power comes from. It's God and God alone. He continues on in verse nine. I'll have that on the screen today. Who has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling, speaking of God, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. And grace, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now he points Timothy to God, saying that it is God who has chosen us. God who saves us. God who gives us our life's calling. And if this wasn't enough of a reason to shout, he says some of the best news ever. And he says, not according to our works. God did not choose you because of what you could bring to the table. Now, I had to submit an application to work in the position that I'm currently literally standing in right now, the job that I have. You probably, last time you had a work experience, had to submit an application as well to that job. But God's not working this way. He doesn't work this way. You don't have to submit an application with your qualifications and a reference sheet to be able to live your life for God. He accepts you where you're at. There is a condition that we have to be humble enough to admit and tell him that we cannot save ourselves, that we have to believe what he has said and submit to his authority in our lives. And that's it. You don't have to prove that you have enough education. You don't have to prove that you have enough experience or on-the-job training to serve the Lord. You don't even have to prove that you're competent on the job. And that's normally a big one, that you have to prove competency in the job to be accepted. Unfortunately, we probably have all experienced a person who is not competent at their job. Generally, it's a bad experience, right? You probably remember, unfortunately, the person that was not competent at their job. But do you want to know the good news? I recently ran across a meme and it made me smile. I thought I would share it with you. It says, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your stupidity. Most comforting thing I have ever heard. I couldn't figure out who the original author was. God knew that we would fail. He knew that we would have a tendency to wander. That we would be fully present one day and then absent-minded the next. But he still chose you. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 9, which we just were looking at, he says that he chose you. When, when did he choose you and put a calling on your life? Before time began. Before time began, <laughs> family church kids, do we have any family church kids in the room? We have a couple of family church kids. Oh, they're my kids. Great. So this is an extra special test. Okay. Okay. What word, starting with the letter O, tells us that God knows everything? It's a big word. Omnipotent, Omnipotent is power. What's the other one? Omnipresence. Omnipresence. Present everywhere. You're getting close. You're working it down omniscient. There you go. Omniscient. Okay. It's one of the words that we went over. He got it. Okay. He got there. And one act of knowing God knew all that there ever was to know. Everything that ever was or could be, God knew it in one act of knowing. Absolutely everything. He knew every mistake, every failure that you could ever make. 
and he still chose you. Why? Because he knew that one day you would choose to love him. You would love him back. And he didn't want to wait to tell you how much he loved you. He loved you so much from the very beginning. And it was at the cross where that love was on full display. That's what Paul says in verse 10. He says, but now, it has now been revealed at the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has been abolished death, he's abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And Paul tells Timothy that the love of God was put on full display through Jesus in his act on the cross. He says that it was revealed at the appearing of our Savior. So what does Paul tell us that Jesus has done for those who call him Savior? Well, that's two things in this verse. He says two things. Number one, he has abolished death. Secondly, he has brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel, to light through the gospel. So Christians, we go around and we ask people if they are saved. You ever asked anybody if they're saved? Has anybody ever asked you, are you saved? You've probably heard this terminology before. Not always the best terminology as it does need some explaining, but accepting Christ as personal Lord and Savior saves us from the second death and the punishment that comes with it. The spiritual death and an eternity of being cast out of God's presence. And it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that those who have chosen to trust him have been given life, a new life. But notice that he says life and immortality. So why would he say life and immortality? Doesn't that seem redundant? But Paul isn't being redundant. When he says life, he's talking about right now. He's given you a new life now here on this earth. Trust in Christ demolishes the power that sin had over you, destroying its grip on you. You now have the ability to choose to live your life for him and to choose to say no to sin right now. In another one of his letters, Paul says that in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. And that comes from the book of Romans. Because we had to obey its lusts before we came to Christ. But after we accept the gift of Christ and sacrifice on our behalf, the power is broken over us and we're given a new spirit. We're given the spirit of God within our lives, the ability to live for God as we choose to. Then Paul says immortality and he's talking about life after physical death. The body that we live in right now is filled with sin. It's slowly worsening, okay? That's the reason why your body slowly aches. It's the reason why you have the joint aches. It's the reason why your knuckles are popping, your hair is graying or falling out, and your eyes are getting worse. The older you are in the room, probably the more obvious this has become to you. This body is filled with sin, and it needs to be replaced, and God gives us a new body. We will receive a new and perfect body one day that will last forever, and during that forever, we will be with Jesus. And it's this news that Paul wants to go around telling people. He, this is what he was telling people, that you get a new body if you trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He went around telling men and women about. And this is the news that he was telling people that landed him in prison. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. I'll have this one on the screen. I've actually got all of them on the screen today. He says, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. 
Paul recognized his calling in his life. And I want you to notice that Paul lists three distinct areas of God's calling on his life. We're all called to more than one area in our life. God actually places multiple areas of calling in our life. We have natural gifts, gifts that we are born with, that we can use for the kingdom. We can actually grow those. But there are gifts that we receive only when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, with spiritual gifts that God gives us at the moment of salvation. Gifts that are unique to the calling that God is placing on our lives. They are gifts that we have to use in faith. And these are different ways, there are different ways to identify spiritual gifts. You can actually go online and do uh, gifts indicator quizzes and stuff like that. There's a bunch of different ways to actually figure those out. There are tests there that help you identify them. But a spiritual gift is not a gift that you had before salvation. It's a spiritual gift. It's given to you at the moment of salvation. It's something that God gave you to accomplish the task that he has in mind for you. So, for example, I'll give you my life because I know me fairly well. I don't know you as well as I know me. I liked teaching before I got saved. In fact, I was actually going to be a science teacher before I got saved. I was going towards college and everything. Teaching isn't my spiritual gift. However, I always avoided crowds. I never spoke to more than a couple of people at once. Maybe you've been there. I don't, I will, you will never see me in front of this. I never said that, but you know, you, you ever been the person, I'm, you're, I will never be in front of the crowd? That was me. But since salvation, as I'm growing in Christ, as I'm maturing in my faith, I realized more and more as I trusted God with my life and his will, I realized that that is the heart that he gave to me, the heart of a pastor, to care for other people's needs, the heart that cares for other people and where they're at and for them and seeking them and for their benefit. And God blesses us with these gifts. They are not accidental gifts. God does not make mistakes. And this is why Paul says that he knows in whom he has believed and that he is persuaded that he, being God, is able to keep which Paul has committed, being Paul's life, until the day that God decides to bring Paul home. Paul trusted that even though his circumstances were not what he wanted, that God knew what he was doing. And that Paul had not fallen through the cracks That his life was not so far in trouble that God couldn't rescue him or even still use him. Paul completely trusted God. He trusted God's plan for his life, even when it meant that it might cost him that very life. He knew that God had plans that he couldn't understand himself. Yet he decided that God was completely worthy of all of his trust. In verse 13 and 14, Paul continues on his encouragement to Timothy. He says these words in 13 and 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So Paul tells Timothy, hold fast. Cling on to the words which Paul had passed on to him, even when Paul was finally gone from this life. He again reminds Timothy to hold fast to his face. Hold fast to love, both of which are found where? In Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Jesus Christ is what he was telling his son in the faith. Paul is telling Timothy to abide in Jesus. And he says some very interesting words. He says, the good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Paul is telling his protege to live by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. However, you're going to want to notice that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us is very interesting 
especially to us as believers in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came down and it dwelt with men for a specific time and a specific purpose. But when that purpose was done, guess what? Holy Spirit took off and he went and he went and he moved on to somebody else. It was not a permanent indwelling like we have today. We have something unique. Trust in Christ as Savior, the Spirit comes and he lives with us permanently. Now, if you trusted Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul and the Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit comes and he lives with you at all times. He's there for a number of reasons, which we have discussed not too long ago. The biggest reason is that he's a guarantee of God's promise. Think of it as his seal, like this one is mine. This is God saying, this one is mine permanently, and he will bring you back to him. In another uh, book in uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty two, it says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And it's not only a guarantee of God's promise to redeem our souls, but it's also a mark showing all the world that we are now God's and we are no longer the devil's. Now in the last four verses of this chapter, Paul talks about those who have left him when times got hard. And the one person that stayed by his side, he kind of switches gears. First, he mentions those who have walked away in verse 15. So he says, this you know, that all of those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. What was their mom thinking? I do not know. Okay, so hard times in life show us quickly who our real friends are. You ever been through a hard time? You figure out who your friends are real fast. Unfortunately, some of those who are around us, as you probably know all too well, are really only there for the good times, the sunshine and the flowers. But when things get going south and they get hard, a hard situation has a unique ability to peel back our own layers. And it also peels back and shows our true character. It also does for those in our lives. When my sister learned that she had cancer, there were several people that said, we are real true friends. We will stand by you till the end. There's actually a couple of handfuls. She was a very popular person. But as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, those friends slowly thinned out until there was only three or four that actually stood by her all the way until the end. Hard times will reveal who your true friends are. And Paul realized this. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in the valley that you've had to walk through and it was too dark for those who had once claimed their undying loyalty and friendship to you. And now you found yourself feeling abandoned and alone, left in your situation. And this is how Paul felt. He had friends and now he's walking through the darkest days of his life and they have all but abandoned him. These men who had once claimed to follow Jesus of all things once stated their undying loyalty to the cause had now, because times were hard, they had abandoned Paul. However, in a very clear contrast, there stood one man. You can look at verse 19 with me. It says these words. The Lord grant mercy to the household of one Cyphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and he found me. So in a complete contrast, we see one Cyphorus. Even in the face of potential danger to himself, one Cyphorus often visited Paul, even though Paul's situation looks dire, like there would be no good outcome, one Cyphorus stood by his friend. One Cyphorus didn't just stand by his friend when it was convenient. From Paul's account, we find that not only did he travel to Rome to find Paul, but also that he diligently sought Paul's out, his location, very zealously. Very zealously. Why would it be very zealously? Well, 
there were no Roman yellow pages. There was no phone directory. And there were more than one jail centers in the great city of Rome. He would have had to go from jail to jail and trying to figure out where his friend was placed. It would have taken him a lot of effort on his part to go and find Paul. Paul concludes his remarks concerning this man of faith. In 18, he says, The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. The mention that Timothy knew this man and that this man was Ephesus actually only underscores the lengths that this man went to support Paul. By sea, Ephesus, I did the math, is 834 miles from Rome. By sea, that's the quickest way of travel. So by ship, it would have taken, guess how long? Two full weeks. Two full weeks by ship, 834 miles of travel, just to go one way to go see Paul in Rome. Anyone here ever take a 14-day trip just to go see a friend in prison? Probably not. The lengths that this man went to to show Paul support are a reminder of us all the lengths that Jesus once went to to bring us back to a relationship with the Father. Now today, we have looked at the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 1. In these 10 or so verses, Paul has reminded us great truths of our relationship with God. He reminded us that we have been called by God. He reminded us that we have been called and that we have been accepted into a family. Even from the beginning of time, God called us and wanted us in the family even from the beginning of time. He knew that you would one day accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Paul reminded us that God chose us because of our faith, not because of the things that we do or could do or bring to the table. Paul reminded us that in Christ we have a new lease on life. We have a freedom from sin, a power to say no to what once completely held us captive. He reminded us that we are each given a calling and that we're given spiritual gifts to help us accomplish the task that he has in store for us. Lastly, he reminded us that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God dwells in you as a believer right now, and he won't leave you no matter what. If you've accepted Christ as Savior, he will continue to dwell with you until the day that God calls you home. So in typical fashion, I have two questions. Number one is slightly different than normal. Have you accepted Christ as Savior? Have you accepted Christ as Savior? We came into this world with a sin nature, every single one of us. We have chosen our way over God's. Every single one of us have chosen our way first, chosen to worship ourselves instead of God. We fail again and again, and we blame him even though he has never done anything wrong. And yet he still wants a relationship with us. That relationship, if you've never accepted Christ as Savior, could start today. And it's very simple. And uh, I was taught one time, a long time ago, the ABCs of salvation. Maybe you've heard them. First, we A, we admit that we ourselves are a sinner, that we have fallen short of God's standards. Then we B, we believe that God has sent his son Jesus to die a death in our place, doing something that we could never do, crossing a bridge that we could never gap ourselves, paying a penalty that we could never pay. He does not deserve. And finally, see, we confess or we tell God that we agree with his assessment of our situation. We agree that we need a savior and we ask him to come into our lives to take control as we live for him. And it's that easy. That is salvation, ABC. Second question is an application question. How can you be more like Onesiphorus? When he found out that his friend was in need, he didn't abandon him. 
He purposed in his heart to be a comfort to someone even when it came at a great personal cost. How can you become a comfort to someone in your life today? Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you for your word and the encouragement that you loved us from the very beginning of time and that you have done everything that you can to mend the relationship and you're just waiting for us to say I love you back. And Father, I ask that you continue to work in each of our hearts. Lord, help us not only to accept this message, but to go out into the world and to tell it. Lord, help us to be like Paul, not to be ashamed of the gospel when we have opportunity, but rather to tell it freely to anyone who will listen. Father, I just thank you so much for the people in this room. God, I ask that you continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Mr. Mike, it is yours and the team's. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.